0: Hey everyone, um, I am doing another podcast specifically for a friend of mine, um, and uh, part of the reason why I'm doing it is because my dog is asleep on my lap and uh, and I don't want to have to move. Um, so uh, yesterday I uh, did a workshop for region one convention and the topic was HP for everyone and it was about you know what if you uh, don't belong to a religion and you don't have any sort of religious faith um you're sort of outside the box and so there were two of us that um uh, shared at the meeting, and I was the sort of woo-woo, I believe in a energy, or I believe in something, um, but I don't define it, and then there was another person who was there who was, doesn't believe in anything, and is a secularist, secularist, so, um, my portion is on my, uh, podcast, and then the full talk for people who are interested, Uh, region one recorded it, and you should be able to find that recording. So it dovetailed, of course, uh, with um, a friend of mine posting on a big text thread, uh, does anyone have any experience being angry at God? And how did you get over that? And I'm like, Uh, I do. So uh, I wanted to elaborate on that a little bit because of course at the workshop, I didn't want to share too much of my personal stuff, but just sort of speak in broad terms. Um, and since this is now just me responding to my friend and it's just me talking to you guys, I can kind of go into it a little bit more. Um, on the podcast that I did yesterday, that kind of tells you you know a little bit of a sketch of my religious my my experience growing up and my religious and non-religious things that happened that kind of influenced me but for this podcast i'm going to talk specifically about um angry at god and how i had to kind of work through that and hopefully it'll um you know, at least help one person. So first of all, um, you know, let, I, I want to kind of define terms. So I, I had to look this up because I knew there was a word for the three. Um, it's called um, Abrahamic religions, which is, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, meaning that they all, you know, stem from the story of Abraham. it's like, okay, so, um, you know, so you have Judaism, they're the oldest, you know, and then, you know, uh, they're waiting for the, I think the Messiah. And then Christ comes along and he's like, I am the Messiah. And people are like, no, you're not. And other people are like, yes, you are. Um, and then Muhammad um, comes along and he's like, I'm the Messiah. And, you know, Christians and Jews are like, no, you're not. And Islams are like, yes, you are. So the point being, it's like it's it sort of stems from that. And, uh, you know, where a uh, Christian Judeo, not really Islamic origin, but, you know, we have them now. But I'm talking about our roots as country. So Christianity is in the water. This becomes relevant. Uh, Growing up, um, my uh, mom was Catholic. My dad at the time was an atheist. Uh, He's not anymore. But um, at the time he was. So I did not have to go to church. So I want to bring that up. However, um, I do feel like I always believed in something and I've always been a spiritual seeker, even when I didn't know that's what I was doing when I was too young to understand that. So, um, I kind of was always involved in woo woo stuff of various, various kinds, all different kinds. You know, I was in the Bay area, I was in Berkeley and San Francisco and, you know, anything like, from Native American to paganism to just, you know, Buddhism to everything. It was just uh, a lot of stuff that are outside of the three major religions I had exposure to. And so I I think a couple of times I was invited to church and churches or whatever, and I I just didn't, I just didn't agree because everyone that I went to basically said, we're right, everyone else is wrong. And I immediately was like, I don't, how could you know that? How could you know, you know? And so I, I couldn't really buy into anything. Um, even though I went and I sort of explored, uh, again, it was just the whole, this is the right way to do this um our beliefs are right and everyone else is wrong and i'm like well you know what um the greeks and the romans thought that you know so it doesn't logically make sense so i was kind of what kind of put me off um the proselytizing put me off um the uh going into uh, other countries and converting, uh, kind of put me off pilgrimage, whatever they, they're called. So, um, but again, I'm living in a Christian Judeo uh, culture, so this idea of a god is prominent. You know, people talk about it, people whatever. Um, so what I didn't realize at the time was that of course I was internalizing this. The way that I think that we internalize racism without knowing it, you know, uh, the way that we internalize uh, misogyny without knowing it or capitalism without knowing it, it's just in the water. So I get into 12-step and I'm invited to, I'm actually directed to uh, believe in a higher power so, um you know, I just sort of believe in the force or, you know, for for a simple term, you know, it's kind of hard at that time to talk about what I believed in. But I believed in basically what we would call the force, like the this energy that's out there. And um, I come into 12 step and because I'm young, uh. What I hear is, um, you know, uh, believe in a higher power, work these steps, and uh, you will recover from everything before you joined program, and you will end up in the promised land. So, and that's That's a very immature view of spirituality and religion, and that's exactly what I thought. So I need to kind of lay that down, like being just, um, you know, young and immature, and also internalizing these messages of, you know, um, heaven on earth and everything like that. And I was invited um, to, uh, you know, come up with my own definition of a higher power. And I did. And like I said, what I didn't realize that I did was mixed in with my own definition of a higher power was a foundations of belief that I had internalized. So and, and, you know, this is all unconscious. Like people don't realize this. Why you go into therapy is because you you uncover these, you know, deep beliefs about yourself, positive and negative, that are influencing your choices today. So I'm going along just fine. You know what I mean? I'm. This is all in my other podcast. I'm like, I'm starting to learn to not react to the word God because in the rooms, People just use it as a placeholder word. You don't really know what people believe in. Sort of redefining, you know, God as a group of dames or an AA group of drunks or an Al Anon, good orderly direction or good omniscient direction. So it was like, so I'm just going along. And at 13 years of recovery, and again, my life is getting better and better and better. So, Because my life was getting better as a result of my recovery, it fed the belief that by believing in a God of my own understanding, which did not belong to any religion, but I was like, okay, I have my own concept of God. Believing in a God of my own understanding, working these steps, I am going to continue down this path of progress and I am going to end up in the Emerald City, you know, or the Promised Land or whatever. And nothing bad will ever happen to me again because my relationship with God will make it so that anything bad that comes my way, God will give me a heads up because I'm in relationship with God every day and tell me to not go down that street where I might get mugged or, you know, Uh, I don't know, assaulted, but to turn down this this street and avoid calamity altogether. And that is what I had, I internalized. And again, I didn't know that. So fast forward to um, 2006, I lose um, the last bit of my weight and I'm down to, you know, a size 10, which is I'm 5'7". And um, all of a sudden I start having trauma memories. And uh, I, you know, they're very vague in the beginning. I started in 2004 working with a therapist that, and I was like, there's something happening. My life feels like it's stuck. Like no matter how hard I work, it's just not getting better and I'm doing everything. I think there's something, that I need to uncover. Um, I did not know at the time that she was a incest survivor as well. And so she recognized in me that and, but she didn't say anything. And, uh, and then we work. And then in 2006, um, I have trauma memories surface. Now, I already had, uh, uh, molestation experiences as a, as a child. And I had two alcoholic parents. So I felt like my bad shit happening to me quota was filled and that I now deserved a better life. And again, I didn't know that I thought these things. These were all internalized. That. Now that I was no longer at home uh, and I was, you know, in recovery and I was working my ass off in recovery, therapy, Reiki, Chinese medicine, everything to like try so hard to overcome the effects of growing up in an alcoholic home. And then I believed that I could sort of heal from that and then start a normal life like basically that i could kind of catch up to people who you know we call like emotionally health healthy securely attached so i had that idea that um kind of like if you're you know part of a team and you're a winning team but you get an injury you know what i mean and so you go off on the side and you heal from your injury and then you come in and now you get to join this winning team or something like that. That's kind of what I thought. So when in 2006, um, these memories came up and they emotion and I basically had an emotional breakdown. I also had a physical breakdown because at that point I had 36 years of um Uh, PTSD uh, and and, an intense high, high levels of cortisol running through my system from growing up and cortisol just wears your body down. And so 36 years of that coinciding with the trauma memories, which threw my cortisol through the roof. I mean, it was already high and now it was so high that it my body couldn't handle it and so then my body physically collapsed. So I spent the summer of 2006 on four months of disability. Uh, I can't leave my house. I can't, I don't have energy to move my body. And I just feel like my life is annihilated. A relationship that I was in ends. Um, I ended it, but I didn't want to end it. You know, it was like, I I thought this was, I thought this was going to be the relationship where now we get married and live happily ever after. So again, like all of these things happen. Um, A job that I had gotten that I felt like now I've arrived, I lost due to this emotional breakdown. So I'm, you know, I'm decimated and I am basically on the floor in the rubble of my life. And how I describe uh, my feeling at that time was that I, I, I was always a deeply spiritual person. I actually went uh, to seminary, it was a Wugu seminary, but I went to seminary for uh, six years. And um, it was sort of an Eastern chakra, Mixed with New Thought Christianity, but we didn't have to be Christian, you know, it was very loose. Church of Natural Grace, it was in San Francisco, studying, like, how to guide people, how to, you know, to find their own higher power. It was just outside of 12 steps. So anyway, I knew that I was not an atheist, and I was so angry at God, and how I described that was, imagine if, like you met your soulmate and you knew they were your soulmate and you knew you wanted to be with them forever but right now in this moment and in this period of your life you feel so betrayed by them absolutely betrayed by them that you cannot look at them that's how angry you are and so i would say like god is sleeping on the couch like i can't even look at you i i can't even be in the same room with you and at that time be, you know as a result of all of this i actually lose my abstinence and my disease progresses to uh bulimia and uh i was like spent a month uh i don't i'm not sure of the exact time but i know it wasn't very long i spent a month Um, uh, binging and purging uh, and and I'm in the rooms and I know because I've got 13 years I know that the solution is recovery but I feel so betrayed by recovery and for those who don't know who haven't heard me say this this is why as an old timer in the rooms, I am incredibly transparent around how life still happens when you have time. Because in the 90s, when I was going to 12 step, a speaker pitch was that you 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 tell the good stuff. So I had listened to speaker after speaker, you know, like, 13 years of speakers talking about that they had a horrible life. They got into recovery and now their life is a life beyond their wildest dreams. And what they don't realize is by not including the struggles that they're still having and by painting this like, you know, picture of like how they're living a life beyond their wildest dream. They're actually selling the idea of a promised land. And so just to nerd out for just a second. So in the 70s, Bob E, um, not Bobby, Bob E, Bob Earl, he started becoming a popular speaker because he had like 10, 12, 13, and he was still struggling with, um, his depression and his life was better than it had ever been before. And there was a huge division in AA around him because of course he's in, you know, you've got the old school AA, which is like, you know, the most important person in the room is the newcomer and you don't fucking tell them that, you know, life is still shit. You tell them like, hey, so basically you sell the idea of sobriety and, and, and you know, the old timers probably and the founders didn't know this, but that's basically what they were doing. It's kind of like because they had a Christian base, they were doing the concept of heaven. You know where it's like if you behave this way you will get into heaven and they took that internalized concept and they rooted it in their pitches which is like okay right now you are in hell with your alcoholism and if you join 12 step and if you turn your will and your life over to the care of god and of course in the beginning it was god you know the abrahamic god then your life will uh, become heaven and you'll get into heaven And so Bob Earl comes around and he has like over a decade of sobriety and he's like, I'm still struggling and I'm still incredibly grateful to be in the rooms. So if you listen to Bob E's messages, they're full of recovery and they're also him talking about um, the struggles that he's dealing with with present time well let me tell you I hadn't heard of this guy before 2006 part of what happened in 2006 around is that someone is that I got an AA sponsor and, um, and a guy in from AA came into OA and he had a, a, a case of CDs of speakers and he gave them to me because he was like oh you'll probably like these and that's how I found Bob Earl So, but up until then, that is not what I heard. I heard that, you know, you do all this work. Your life is going to be Emerald City. Nothing bad is going to happen to you again. And now the whole purpose of your life is going to be able to reach back and help other people get to the promised land. That's what I heard. So, yes, I was incredibly angry that this is what was happening in my life. Um, at this time, this is also, I've kind of come out. This is when I developed agoraphobia, although I didn't realize that was what I had developed. For people who don't know, I've shared this a lot, agoraphobia is not fear of going outside. It's the fear that I'm going to be somewhere and I'm going to get triggered and I'm going to have some sort of panic attack. Or And uh, and so I don't go places because I'm afraid that I'll get triggered. Now, I, I might do a whole podcast on how to, if, you, if you're identifying with that, my healing around that. But that's not the point. The point is, is like i used to be my my view of myself is brave and fearless at this time i had no fear of walking down dark alleys i took model mugging i you know when i was younger i did things over and over and over again to demonstrate how brave i was because my mother was so full of fear so i would do things that were you know that you had to be brave for so my my identity was someone who was fearless. And now I am living, I had to move. That's another thing, you know, I had to move cause I couldn't, and I had to, you know, get um, my own. I actually did that before. So that was sort of a God piece like that. I let, I moved out with my roommate and I got my own little studio. And that, you know, if I tell the story a certain way and I can, there were all these things in place so that when I blew up, when these memories surfaced, I had all the support in place. And maybe I'll circle back around to that. So I was, so I go from being this fearless person that um, I thought of as incredibly like a super brave warrior to being in my studio shaking with fear. And at one point, in order to calm myself down from uh, a panic attack, um, I curled up in a ball in the closet because I I was working with little uh, inner child stuff and, and really working with like, what does my little girl wants to do? She just wants to hide. And so I was taught like, well then go hide. So the point being, it's like my identity is now shattered. Also, I used to be, freakishly strong, which I now understand was the cortisol. Because when you uh, are in fight or flight mode, you can you can have feats of strength that you didn't have before. Well, I was constantly in fight or flight mode. So I had incredible physical strength. Plus, right before all that, I was going to the gym, really strong. After that, because of the illness, I barely could open a can of jar or a a jar of peanut butter. Like I could barely open it. I mean, everything just felt like I just had no strength in my body. So I don't even know who I am anymore. Not to mention the fact that I have to integrate this new memory. It was an extended family member. I always like to make that clear, but still it was an extended family member that I loved and trusted and that was an important person to me um so again that was really decimating so i get this aa sponsor um to help me get out of relapse um and at this point my sugar addiction explodes now up and i wasn't eating sugar because it was part of the food plan but i would let myself have sugar because i was still trying to deny that i was a sugar addict Um, I was still trying to find ways that I could have sugar and what sort of coalesced with this time period was waking up to the truth that I was addicted to sugar, like full on addict, alcoholic, addicted to sugar. So that is why I was looking for an AA sponsor because in the rooms at that time people were moderating their sugar and it was it was not a, a good influence for me to hear that because I kept trying to do that. I needed to go to I needed to go to a place where it was a yes, no, like no, you no matter what. Like in AA, they don't drink no matter what. And I needed an AA sponsor who would recognize that I could educate and recognize that my sugar, my eating sugar is your drinking. So through amazing circumstances, I found this woman who sponsored me. She knew that it, I was an alcoholic, that I was a sugar addict. Well, so we start going through the steps again and we get to step two, right? What am I gonna do? In my case, I had to reconcile my childhood trauma with a concept of a higher power. And that was the crux of it. How? Because up until then, those things were kind of separate. Like I was able to just have a kind of casual relationship with a higher power. Also it was very woo woo, you know, so I was like, oh, chakras energy, you know. Um, and when your higher power is chakras or energy, you know, you don't really ask the question, why did you let this happen to me? Well, when this all happened, then the foundation of my belief system i was i was confronted that with the idea that i had internalized our christian judaism that deep down underneath i did have a belief that there was a god that directed your life and and that forced me then to go well, then where the fuck were you, right? So I I hope I'm making sense in the sense of like, these were deep, unconscious, buried ideas and thoughts that I didn't know that I had. So when I was doing spiritual seeking, my consciousness level was above that. And I was just thinking in terms of energy and chakras and, you know, whatever and and buddhism a little bit of buddhism a little bit of this a little bit of that and then but what was also buried were the incest memories so when i this all blows up in my face in 2006 not only am i confronted with um the trauma memories But I'm also confronted with the fact that I had completely internalized the idea of a God in heaven who was directing my life. And I had that in my bones. So I have to heal this, right? I'm like, now what do I do? And I'm on fucking step two and three. And the way that I got out of bulimia was not through step two and three. The way that I got out of bulimia was harm reduction. By being in the rooms and and knowing about other programs, I knew that heroin addicts used methadone and so the concept of a methadone and the concept of harm reduction, because of course I'd go to these AA meetings where they weren't drinking, but they were eating sugar all day long. I'm a sugar addict and I'm like, you guys just switched addictions, right? So I had to be educated on, you know, they they that they're eating sugar all day is a fuck ton better than the fact that they're drinking, you know? And so how I got of my bulimia, because again, I'm not doing step two and three, I'm stuck on step two and three. I actually went back to smoking, which I was filled with shame about, but that's how I got myself to stop binging and purging was I was like, okay, what is something that is less harmful at this time, than me binging and purging. And for me, that was smoking. So I, cause I was on my way. I didn't, I didn't know that I was thinking this. So let me describe the moment. I am, this is like incomprehensible demoralization. I hope I never forget this. I am wanting to not binge and purge. And every day I do. And one day I wake up with the same thought, okay, today, I am not going to binge and purge and I, I would make it till about three o'clock and one day I woke up and with every fiber in my being, every cell, every heartfelt thing that I felt in my body, I did not want to binge and purge that day. I did not want to be someone who binged and purged. And I knew at the same time that I was going to do it. No matter how badly I wanted to not do it, I was going to do it. And that is when I felt like that deep incomprehensible demoralization. I knew that no matter how many meetings I went to, no matter what I did around three o'clock, my disease was going to take over and I was going to go get some sugar. Sure enough, that day, around three o'clock, I'm like practically crying on the way to do it. Like, I don't wanna do this. And I'm going, I'm doing it. And I'm like, no. And on my way to the coffee shop that had all of the sexy little treats, right before the coffee shop, that was on one corner, and on the corner before the coffee shop was the little liquor store. And the way that it was set up was, you walked in the door and right there at the door, was the cashier, and behind the door were cigarettes. So I'm walking to get all of my treats, and out of the corner of my eye, I see the guy, and I see the cigarettes behind him, and I start telling myself about harm reduction. I start negotiating with myself. How about we have a cigarette? Let's have a cigarette. Let's, let's like a toddler, you know what I mean? Like, give me the knife. You know what I mean? And here's your, you know, play school knife. Give me that real knife and let me give you this play school knife. So that's how I got out of binging and purging was that I just started smoking and I cried because I didn't want to because that was the first I hadn't smoked in 8 years it was the first thing that I really sort of gave up that was a commitment to my new recovery life you know I came into recovery at 23 and when I turned 20 or no and on December 25th of 1994 when I turned 24 my gift to myself was that I was going to quit smoking and it was like a big huge thing for me like this is just more proof of this new life that i'm going to have so when i picked up the cigarettes again it was i felt like a failure and but that's what i had to do so now i'm harm i'm using harm reduction i'm going to at least at least two meetings a day often three because i'm on disability i would have people pick me up and You know, I'd go to a morning meeting. That was the one I could do on my own because it it was like every day I had like one hour of energy in me before my body kind of collapsed. And I would walk to the morning meeting that was just a few blocks away. It was an AA meeting and I would walk home. And then I had a friend who was also struggling with relapse. And then she would come get me and we would go to a noon meeting and then a night meeting. And then or uh, a five o'clock. So it was like a seven o'clock, a noon, and then like a five o'clock meeting. And then one time I went to an eight o'clock meeting because I was so afraid of being alone with, with the possibility of me going. And that was one day, that's how, that's how bad things were. So now that I've sort of described the picture, how did I get out of that? Now, this is where it's like, this is my perspective. This is my experience. This may not work for you, but maybe the process of how I did this may help. So fortunately I, because I had been reading or listening to, you know, spiritual lectures or religious lectures, or I'd been a little bit curious, um, I'd done a lot of philosophy classes. I under, even though I'd never gone to church, I understood the concept of free will. So I started to meditate on that because I would be like thinking about the trauma of my childhood, because I'm stuck in step two. And I would be thinking about the trauma of my childhood and, I, and now I've uncovered that I do have this core belief that there's a God in the sky, genderless, it doesn't matter, but there's an omniscient being in the sky And I'm like, where the fuck were you? Right? So I'm having these trauma memories. I'm realizing, like, I have this belief. And it's like, if you're an all knowing, all loving God, where the fuck were you when these adults were perpetrating on me? And the answer that I got back every time I asked that was, Nick, how could I have intervened without taking away free will? So I wanna dilate on this for a second. And I encourage people to do whatever they need to do, but if this is resonating for you, really study this because that's what I had to do. So the concept of free will is that if there is a God, and he's all powerful, how is it that we make choices? How is it that not everything that happens is actually God's will, you know what I mean? So the idea of like, you know, cause you can imagine, you know, there you are in human tribes and people are, you know, sleeping with people they shouldn't, they're killing people, they're doing all these bad things. And it's like, well, if there is an all knowing, all powerful God, then God must be doing that, right? So out of that, they're like, no, Um, what they came to was this concept of free will. And it's like that God gave humanity one gift. And that gift was, is that I have autonomy as a, as an individual, I have autonomy, and I can make my own choices. It was a gift that God gave me, like Basically, God's like, I'm going to make you a separate being from me, and you get to make your own choices. And I'm going to that's the one gift I give you. Um <clears throat> is that you have free will. Now I I thought about that. And so because again, like God, why did you let this happen? Why did you let this happen? And bad shit's happening in the news, and I'm like, why did you let this happen? It always came back for me, like how could i have intervened in that in your personal um, tragedy in this global tragedy without taking away free will so i had to really really meditate on a planet that not only do i have free will but the planet has free will biology has free will like you know the planet just you know that things happen and I, and I would think back to the bad things that happened, and I would try to imagine God intervening, and how God could do that. I would try to literally imagine whatever traumatic situation I had, and then try to think about how God could have intervened without taking away free will, and I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything. Meanwhile, around the same time, all these things were happening that kind of demonstrated to me how you know, God's favorite instrument is, because I was like, well, why didn't you send someone? You could have sent someone. It's like, okay, well, again, free will, right? Like you're gonna take someone else's free way free will away and turn them into <clears throat> one of your robots and make them go and intervene? And I'm like, well, what about an intuitive thought, right? Like, what if you gave someone an intuitive thought that just kind of guided them? You know, they had the choice to follow your guide or not. And <clears throat> and so what about that? Well, sure enough, not long after. I am in a supermarket or a store. I see a little girl with two parents, I look at that little girl, whether this is true or not, I look at her face and I'm like, something is not right here. Something is going on with this little girl. And I thought, okay, Nick, here you have it, an intuitive thought that something's not going on. What is it that you think you can do? What power do you think you can have here? None. Like no power at all, no power at all. I'm like, oh my god, okay. So then comes like, well then what's what's the fucking point of you, God, right? Meanwhile, I'm having to just move through um, my my step work, and this is what I talked about in the workshop that I did yesterday. I realized that that wrestling with god or no god or free will that it wasn't helping my recovery so what i had to do was separate these theological discussions that i was having with myself from my 12-step program i had to be like my step two cannot be that i believe in god capital g it can't be that because I'm up here wrestling with big concepts and I'm not doing a step three because, you know, came step two came to believe in a higher power that could restore me to sanity. That's the catch. It's not that you believe in something. If it just said came to believe in something, I could have stopped there and anybody could could answer that. But step two is, came to believe in a higher power that could restore you to sanity. So, my step one was, you know, as I've talked about before, is um, I've, I have reworked step one to, to fit all of my programs to be I am powerless over the effects of growing up in an alcoholic home, and my life is not what I want it to be despite my best efforts. That's the step one. When left to my own devices, my life is not what I want it to be. When I'm isolated and alone and making my own decisions and not asking for help and not going into therapy and letting all my unconscious drives take over and letting all my um, compulsions take over, my life is fucked and I don't want that life anymore. So it's like, oh, okay. So step two came to believe in a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity. So I take out the word sanity. Came to believe in a power greater than yourself that can help you become the person you actually want to be. And you ha- and step 3 is, you know, you made a decision to turn your thoughts and your actions, right? Your will in your life, your thoughts and your actions over to this higher power. So I have to take all of my best ideas and turn them over now, again, while I'm up here in theological land, you know, doing my, you know, graduate level PhD religious studies work, I'm stuck on that because I don't actually have an answer. Because fucking no one does, right? And, you know, I'm a, you know, pragmatics, you know, woo woo secularist, Buddhist, whatever. So I'm wrestling with myself. I'm like, this is not working for me anymore. I cannot do this. So I had to thank God I am an earth sign and a Capricorn. I had to bring it down to, I had to get my head out of the clouds and out of the ivory tower of academia. And I had to bring it down to just the earth, just the practical, practical steps. And so for me, what I realized is, okay, I actually cannot think of God when I think of step two and I think of step three because I will get stuck there and I will not move on. I will not turn my life over to anything like that. So I had to think of my higher power as when I engage in the process of recovery, my life gets better. So my higher power became the process of recovery for practical purposes. Now, if I wanna go over here and start having theological debates, that's fine. But I have to keep that separate from my 12-step program Until, and it's been some time, I have started to integrate some of that. But in the beginning, I had to keep them totally separate. So that when step two was talked about, or step three was talked about, I did not think of anything theological or mystical at all. I just thought about what constitutes having a program. You know, all of the tools, you know, meetings, step work, sponsor, um, service, Uh, calls, connections, stuff like that. And then step three is that I am going to engage in my program and that that is my higher power. And if I do those things, then my life will get better. And it has. And over time, what I have come where I'm at now is recognizing that everything in a 12-step program, the process of recovery, and I talked about this in the workshop, it emotionally makes me available for vulnerability and connection. And when I connect to my tribe, my meetings, my fellowship, I feel the power of connection which I call love. And there's all different kinds of love. It's not just romantic. Um, there's platonic, there's eros. there's all this different kinds of love. And when I am connected in that way, then I actually am tapped into a power greater than myself. And a lot of us recognize this, that, you know, the difference, a lot of us are discovering this and like, you know, the difference between going to a zoom meeting and the difference between sitting in a room together, and opening our hearts and sharing, and that there is a visceral experience when that happens. And that mystery um, is my higher power. So I was able to eventually get to a place where I defined my higher power as, you know, um, something beautiful and something mysterious. Now, sometimes I would also say something benevolent and something mysterious. And then I could also just say, I believe in love, which is beautiful, benevolent, and mysterious. And that's the higher power that I believe in. And that's where I'm at now. And I understand that by studying the concept of free will, that I absolutely believe in that concept, even if it's not attached to any religious doctrine. I believe in autonomy. I believe that I have the capacity to decide for myself my thoughts and my actions which is free will and and so as a result of that that's the the root of my spiritual belief system and then i'm either connecting to the planet to my body to my friends to my you know community my fellowship i'm either moving in a direction towards connection Or I'm moving in a direction towards disconnection. And disconnection is the effect of fear. When I'm in a place of fear, I disconnect. I I fold in on myself. But if I stay in the process of recovery, the compulsion or impulsion that I have to, to cave in on myself and disconnect is overpowered by the love that I feel in the room. And it's like... And, and so the more that I do that, yes, I may have these like fear-based thoughts, but my muscle memory and my neuroplasticity is to go towards love. And it's a daily practice, and I have to practice it every day. And that's why we only get, you know, it's a day-at-a-time program. And there are things that I have to do, including sleep, including psych meds, that give me a strong enough foundation that I don't, that the fear, because without enough sleep and without meds, I am, my body It has PTSD and I'm in a triggered state and fear is now driving my bus. So first I have to get a good foundation of sleep. Um, and then I also need medication for, you know, my, uh, growing up in a crazy environment and how that affected uh, my um, brain structure. And then I have to engage in the process of recovery. And when I do that, you know, I am wired. I am wiring myself and directing myself and navigating myself towards love. And then I can live my day with like answering the question, what would love do here? What does love look like in this situation? And every time I don't know what action to take, that's the question that I ask. If I were watching this scene, so let's say I have to make a decision or something, or something is, I'm having an interaction with a person, and if I were watching this on a stage, and I was a playwright, I would have to ask myself, what would love do here? what would this character how would this character behave if her quote motivation was love and connection what would she do which is another reason why i like the um this new definition of a boundary that i've heard recently where a boundary is the distance where i can love myself and i can love you so that scene that i'm playwriting may be like she needs to leave or that scene may be like she needs to soften and apologize, or she needs to soften and say, you may be right, or, or whatever it is. So um, anyway, uh, I wanna let my friend know that I love her very much, and um, and I hope, this is a really long, but you can I think in hearing it, you can understand, like, I, I don't think I could have made this any shorter. So um, anyway, I love you guys, and uh, yeah, one more day at a time. Bye.